You can be seated. Man, love that song. Love that song. Did you catch the words in the one point where it talks about he is our king? Listen, so far in our study through Exodus, we have been learning about people who have been learning what that is, in fact. We've started out in Exodus, and I think what we've really seen is from the time Moses shows up for the Israelites, the Hebrews living as slaves in Egypt, from the time that Moses shows up to through the ninth plague, God has been about revealing himself, showing himself to the people. In other words, these people who are polytheistic worshipers, who really, for all practical purposes, worshiping other gods, just like the Egyptians, more like Egyptians than we think of them in the Old Testament. There they are over there, yet God selected them, and God has been showing himself great to them for this period of time, for about a year plus period of time. Then it's at the tenth plague, at Passover. There it is at a point in time where I think God is all of a sudden making a very distinct change. He's asking the people, listen, do you want to participate with me in my plans? And there that night they have the opportunity to make a sacrifice, to paint the blood over the door frames of their homes, to hunker down as God's judgment passes over the land of Egypt. Those who are covered by the blood, God passes over. And in his grace, covered by the blood, does not bring judgment on them. And then after that, they had the choice whether they could be able to participate and be able to walk out of Egypt, whether they wanted to be ones that participated in the crossing of the Red Sea. And here in this whole process, we've seen God showing himself, then we've seen God laying out this opportunity. Do you want to participate with me? Then once they're on the other side, on the east side of the Red Sea, if you will, the Suez Canal, they're on the east side of that, God then takes a couple months, and God is in the process of helping these people understand and realize what life with him is like. Hey, listen, I just want to tell you, if you're here today and you're like, you know what, this whole God thing, in many ways it's either brand new or I've been raised with it all my life, I've seen it, but I really don't know what it means to live with God. That's cool. In fact, I'm very glad you're here. Because we are in the process together. And we see God is in this process over here bringing these people and allowing them to come to realize that life with him is about life lived in faith. The thirst, the hunger, the thirst issue we saw in the previous chapters. And God is helping these people realize what life is him like. And then I think last week we saw a big change in the text and where things are going. God is now forming the people into a nation. It's very, very important that we understand that this is about God forming these people into a nation for him. You see, this just is not some random story that's just like, isn't that a cute story and a great story to be able to tell kids and to be able to make pictures on. This is about God forming a nation, and God is moving these people who are at one point in time servants to Pharaoh for his glory to become servants of Yahweh, the God, the creator of the Bible, or the creator of all things, the God of the Bible. And God is not just done with them, but he's moving them. God's plan, as we find out later on in the Old Testament, is God is seeking to move the people to become priests to the world. God wants to use the people to be the ones who are the voice and who are the ones living out what life with him is like to be able to bring the whole world under submission and in love with him. And God is in this process of moving these people to that point. And we saw, I think, uh, in Exodus 17 where he is beginning to form these people into a nation. That means in Exodus 17 he forms them into a military nation powerhouse. Today, 
we're going we're to see them move from militarily built to civilly built. And from here on out, we're going to be able to start seeing this nation form spiritually. Today, we're going to a really cool text. I love Exodus 18, but I have to also tell you, as from a pastoring side of me, gets oftentimes in the past has been very irritated with how this passage is taught. Because oftentimes this passage is taught as though it's an MBA course. It's a class. It's a class in administration and in management. That Exodus 18 is a class about how to delegate. Leaders delegate. And it clearly it comes across and that's what we see happen. But folks, I just want to say that is so losing the big picture of what's happening here. This isn't a management course. This is about God structuring God's people in a way that is most effective for them to function for his glory. That's what this is about. And we're going to see that in the text. We're going to see a couple things in here, but we're going to really see that Exodus 18 shows God's design that ministry be pushed out. And you're like, what are you talking about? We'll fill that in. But Exodus 18 talks about how ministry is to be pushed out. Out. And we're going to see that start happening when we see a guy come on the scene and his name is Jethro. So let's uh, go and let's take a look at starting out and seeing the push it out voice comes on the scene. Exodus chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible with you, I think some people have come around or are coming around with a Bible. Love to have you grab one and use that. But Exodus chapter 18. Jethro. Now Jethro is not the Beverly Hillbillies guy. Jethro, we learn first, is the priest of Midian. Now, I just want to take a moment here and say this. I'm not going to have time to expound it out because I want to stay focused on some other things. But I do believe that Jethro is a, is a worshiper of Yahweh. Okay, He's in the land of Midian. He is actually a Gentile. He is not an Israelite. He was not over with the Israelites in Egypt. But I do think that uh, Jethro was a worshiper of Yahweh. And again, I don't have the time to go into the reasonings for that, but I'm just going to tell you that's my view. It kind of shows up a little bit later uh, uh, on something I'll clarify out. But Jethro, we know, is a priest in Midian. He's a Gentile priest. And then he is also, what's the next thing it says? He's Moses' father-in-law. Excellent. Okay, let's keep reading. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel as people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, who? Okay. Had taken Zipporah, his wife. So who's Zipporah? His wife, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, I think that was in Exodus chapter 4, which is about over a year prior. Exodus chapter 4, Moses is at the burning bush, 3 and 4, he's at burning bush, he leaves, he goes to the land of Midian, where he checks with his father-in-law, asks his father-in-law if it's been okay if he could be able to go to Egypt, as God told him to do. He said, yes, you have my blessing, so he heads out. He takes Zipporah, and I think the two kids, one of which I think was brand newly born, on the way, and if you were here during that time, we saw that God stopped him dead almost in his tracks. Because I think Moses had not been obedient in carrying out God's covenant call for them on his own child in the circumcision thing. And God said, listen, you are not going to lead my people if you are not obedient in your own life in your own home. And after that, I think what we see is Zipporah and the kids actually go back to the land of Midian because of the circumcision and Moses continues on. I think Moses has been away from his family all this period of time. 
Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, his wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. What are the names of his sons, Doug? Here we go. The name of the one was Gershom. I love that name. Wouldn't you love to call your kid that? No one's named that here, are they? I just thought of that. For he said, Moses said, Gershom means I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. I was in the land of Midian, verse 4. And then the name of the other son was Eleazar. For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So those are his two kids. Verse 5, Jethro, who? (laughs) Okay, okay. It's really interesting in this text. It's like, dude, Moses is writing this like, I got the idea. He's your father-in-law. I mean, don't treat me like a loser. You have to say it three times like in one paragraph? Yes. Here's why. Listen, things happen, and Moses is recounting this and writing this down. And I think what's taking place here is Moses is showing an emphasis. What is about to be talked about in chapter 18 is all about a relationship between Moses and him. This is an interaction between Jethro and Moses. This is not about an interaction between Moses and Zipporah or Moses and his kids. Why do I say that? Let's keep reading and I'll clarify. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. So who's all there? Moses. Who else? His wife, his father-in-law, and his two kids. Verse 6. And when he sent word to Moses, uh, Jethro did, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Verse 7, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Uh, Okay, ladies, uh, I need to clarify something. Because right now you're like, what's with this Moses guy? I mean, he's been away from his wife all this time. His wife and kids come, and it's like, hey, Dad, great to see you. Oh, hi, honey, whatever. Um, And that's not what's happening here. I really don't think that's what's happening here. I think what's taking place here is Moses is writing this, telling about an interaction between him and Jethro. That's the focus of the text. Okay, so wives, women, don't get all ticked off at this guy. Believe me, I think there was some serious kissing going on, okay, when they saw each other again, okay? But here's what, this is about Jethro and Moses and an interaction. Let's keep reading, verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. Can you imagine that conversation? Dad, you have no idea what's been going on. And he updates him. Verse 9. And Jethro rejoiced. What a thrill that must have been for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Hey, I do not think that statement is a confession of conversion. But I think in the whole flow of the text, do you remember if you've been here for a while, in the flow of the text, we've seen other points in times where God has been saying, listen, I'm doing this that you will know that I am what? The Lord. And I just want to say, how wonderful is this? That Jethro, who's been in the land of Midian a long ways away from everything that the Lord has been doing in Egypt, and Jethro, when he hears about this, it's kind of like the time where you and I, uh, if you're a follower of Christ, it's like, I know he's the Lord, but then there are times where it's like, oh, I'm just reminded, he is the Lord of all. 
I really think that's what's taking place here, not a conversion change. Some think this is a conversion change. That's why I'm kind of focusing on it. I don't think that it is. It's just a confirmation of what the Lord has done because of the affair that the Egyptians arrogantly dealt with the people. Verse 12, and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, <laughs> I, just, I hate typing that. You know, I mean, have you? Oh, well. He wasn't typing it, but Moses' father-in-law brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Okay, why, is all the, why are these first 12 verses here? I think these first 12 verses are here to help us reconnect the story. Because if you were just to read up through chapter 17, Jethro has not been in the picture for like a long time. So who is he? How did he get there? Moses is recounting how he got there, who he is, what he's doing. And remember this, Jethro and Moses have had a relationship now for 40 years. Moses is 80 years old. That means Jethro is at least his age, if not older. So here's this 80-year-old guy. They've had a 40-year relationship, and they didn't just have a father-in-law relationship because they had to, but for about 39 out of those 40 years, these were business partners. I hired my father-in-law out of ministry years ago when I was in business. I loved working with Karen's dad. Loved it. And and I'm sorry, but I just love that guy. We've done things, gone places, traveled together, gone on business trips together. No one else knows about as far as, I mean, they knew about it, but they just can't, you've had to be there. I was in business with my brother for 20 years, 21 years. There's a relationship there that is like none other. I love my brother. That experience has been phenomenal. And it's such a thrill now to see how the Lord is using him in ways and the success that God has brought upon him. And he's just thrilled to see what I'm doing now. And it's just a very special thing. And I bring that up because that's what was happening here. Please understand as we read this text, this is about two elderly men that genuinely love each other deeply and have a long history together. So the push it out voice comes on the scene, that's Jethro. And the push it out voice is about to speak and make his appeal. Let's watch Jethro here. Folks, there's something to learn from the way he gives an appeal. That's not the focus of the text, but I do want to bring it out while we're going through this. We're going to listen to the appeal, and we're going to listen to how he makes this appeal. Verse 13, the next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Got to want that job, huh? They stand around him from morning to evening. When Moses' father-in-law is there for the first time, he sees all that is doing for the people. Sees his son-in-law, his, his friend, his bud, his, and there he is watching it all day long, and he sees what's happening. And then he said to Moses, and what I'm kind of trying to get by this picture is I think this is a step-aside time together where Jethro pulls Moses aside and says this, Moses, um, what, what is that that you're doing for all the people? I'm curious, why do you sit alone? I mean, all the people stand around you from morning till evening. 
uh, I do not think this is the Moses. What are you doing for the people? Why do you sit alone, you knucklehead? I don't think that's the flow of this at all. I think this is an intimate conversation. In fact, let's put it this way. Notice here, two things are happening starting out about an appeal. The best appeals pause to assess. The best appeals pause to assess. Husbands and wives, listen to this, what we're talking about here. Friends, listen to this. As you make appeals to other friends, listen to this. We're not talking about a sin issue. We're talking about appeals for improved effectiveness. The best appeals pause to assess. In other words, before I make an appeal to someone, I need to pause and assess the circumstances before I speak. I mean, this may have been a completely out-of-the-norm situation that was happening. But this is, he paused and he looks and takes to see what happened here. It takes some time to observe, watch it, think it, process it. Before I'm going to pause and assess and, or pause and appeal to someone, I'm going to look at the circumstances. Then I'm going to pause and I'm going to observe and I'm going to assess myself. I'm going to pause and I'm going to consider myself. Why do you say that, Doug? I say that because of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 says, Why do you go and pick the speck out of someone else's eye when you have a log in your own eye? The point is just what it says. I'm walking around and if I'm at home and there I am walking around with this big giant life timber thing going on in my life and I'm walking around and over here Karen something happens during the day and like I jump on her and make an appeal to her when I've got this gigantic mambo jumbo I-beam swinging around. Oh, listen, how is that going to help her in that? When she sees the magnificent I-beam coming out of my face. Matthew 7 says, pause to appeal. Pause and think through the circumstance. Think through myself. I would just ask some questions with that. Pause to check my own pride. Should I say anything? Should this be something that love just covers? Am I picking specs? Also, what validates my making an appeal to him or her? Am I really in the position in the relationship to make the appeal? May I remind us that Jethro, yes, father-in-law to son-in-law, but Moses was God's man. I mean, hokey Pete, I ain't going up to Moses and going, you doof, what are you doing? I mean, he's God's man. By the way, you don't see her doing this, not him, but her, H-U-R from last week. You don't see her doing this. You don't see Joshua doing this. You don't see Aaron do this. You don't see Miriam doing this. You see Jethro doing this. Why? I think there's some good relationships because this was a relationship appeal over time and history. We have to be careful. Is this something I'm bringing up that's just a personal preference style thing gone legalistic? Man, sometimes we see that going on in churches today. Just like, goodness gracious, is that really biblical or is that just a personal preference? So appreciated this morning. A family came here with one of our regular attenders and they came and they said, yeah, we're from another church. We're used to a pretty conservative music style. And uh, you could just see their eyes were kind of like a little bit wide. And then she says, thanks. I just really enjoyed the opportunity to worship with you guys. I'm like, rock on, sister. Is it a personal preference thing going legalistic? Is this coming from a personal agenda? Am I trying to gain power? Am I trying to get back? That's why I'm picking at it. Or am I, frankly, just trying to be self-righteous? 
I'll just add, is this coming out of an area of personal passion? Uh, Let me put it this way. I'm so grateful in ministries and in life, people are different. People have different passions, people different backgrounds and experiences and different giftedness as a follower of Christ. And that's a good thing. I am so glad that everybody in here is not completely fired up for kids and kids only. Because we would be missing some things. I'm really grateful to people who even aren't necessarily that's their first love in life are doing it. But yet, I put it this way. Different isn't wrong. It may just be different. Different isn't always wrong. It just may be different. Again, we're not talking about a sin issue here. We're not talking about a parent telling a child to do something. And we're not talking about an obedience issue. We're not talking about something with a boss at work with this. We're not talking about to a policeman. We're talking about a suggestion on ways to do things. And sometimes different is just different. But at our other church, we did it this way. Cool, good for them. At my other job, we did it this way. Cool, good for them. Hey, Daddy, Bobby's house, they do it this way. Way to go, Bobby's house. We're not Bobby's house. Something like that. Different isn't always wrong. It may just be different. Second, be good best appeals begin with questions. Do you notice here? Uh, he, Jethro starts with two questions. What is this that you are doing for the people? And why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you in the morning? Listen, questions help the one giving the appeal. They keep you humble. They remind you that you're a learner. I don't have it all together. I may not have all the data because not only do they help remind me where I am at that I'm a person who's trying to help, but questions also help me gather more data. You know what? Maybe this was an abnormal day. Maybe something had happened huge among the Israelites that Jethro just happened to be there at that point in time and this is not normal and Jethro comes in running through the door going, hey, son-in-law, you're just a knucklehead. That, listen, questions settle it down and questions help me to get for more data. Questions also help the one being appealed. You see, questions lead to conversation, not attack. Questions have a way of leading to conversation. I'm not putting you on trial. Oh, by the way, begin with pause and... and uh, pause and and assess and then pause and ask questions and the other part with the questions thing is uh and listen ouch that's a hard one you know i can ask questions and it's like yeah i'm right on the right track i'm doing it just like jethro did and then you know it's like oh by the way i have to pay attention to you Uh, no actually listen in fact let's do this let's listen to what moses has to say jethro asked the question verse 15 and moses said to his father-in-law dad I'm doing this because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And and dad, I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. I'm just going to tell you, I I totally, I, I think as much as I can, I feel like I totally get what Moses is saying here. Moses is not a nincompoot knucklehead management guy. This is not that he's, he's just messed up. This is the kind of situation where Moses is here and it's like, my goodness, he's been dealing with all these people for this period of time. By the way, people who have been like complaining to him all the time and people who have been using lawsuit terms like we want to take you out kind of stuff. And yet in all of this, Moses has the opportunity to be able to help them. Plus they're asking, who else is going to teach them? 
I mean, he's been the guy who, before these polytheistic people, now they're having situations come up, and they're coming to him and saying, Moses, how do we handle this? And I'm like, totally get it why he's the one. Who else is going to do this right now? I, I think it's completely understandable. The best appeals ask questions and listen, and then the best appeals speak the truth and love. Verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, to Moses, Moses, what you're doing, um, it's just not good. Uh, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out this way, Moses. For the thing is too heavy for you. you you're not able, you're not designed to do this alone. Now, obey my voice. I, I, I'll give you advice and, and God be with you. Let me just note in here. Did, did you notice this, uh, how he just speaks the truth? Uh, listen, listen to me. Because on this point, speak the truth in love. Here's the reality. You either bend towards being someone who, quote, speaks the truth, or as a friend of ours called it, verbal vomit, or you are one who always encompasses it just in love and you never get to the truth of the heart of the issue. That's generally the balance. Where are you in that reality? I'll just tell you like this, I'm this way. Personally, I'm this way. It may surprise you, but I'm just this way, more this way. And so when we speak the truth in love, what am I talking about? Well, speaking the truth, it's not manipulative talk. It's not I'm going to set you up talk. It's not half-truth talk. It's not verbal vomit. By the way, we do not speak everything we think. If you're a person who is driven that way to speaking the truth, and you're one who speaks everything you think, that's what you need to be working on. 2 Corinthians, I think, believe chapter 10 says that we need to be able to take every thought captive. That means there are things that we think that need to be taken captive, wrapped up, and shipped out somewhere where it's never verbalized, never said, never known, because I ain't going there, because frankly, that's sin. And we need to watch that so we speak the truth. But we also speak the truth in love. In love means that we're not speaking brash. We're not speaking mean. It's not out of pride. It's not yelling. It's not demeaning. It's not arrogant. Listen, this is a relationship appeal. These two bros loved each other. And this was a together kind of a thing. And here I think we see Jethro coming in and speaking the truth in love. Did you notice in verse 18 where he says, I'm concerned about you and the people. This isn't about the whole process of the structure. And again, you engineer types, type A's. Generally, oftentimes you can look and go, it's about the, where we're trying to get to. If we're going to be able to get over here, we've got to be able to do this. So that's, I'm concerned about getting there. Jethro was concerned about the people. He was concerned about Moses and he was concerned about the Israelites. And we see in the terminology, he says, you're going to wear yourself out. This is too heavy. Listen, you were designed to do this alone. This is a relationship love appeal. Coming alongside and trying to help. The best appeals assess. The best appeals begin with questions and the best appeals speak the truth in love. And fourth, the best appeals offer solutions. Look at this. I love this. Dad comes inside here after saying this, and he offers a solution. 
you, Moses, shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them known and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Yes, Moses, absolutely. Moses, you are right. You need to be the guy that's teaching these people. You are the man. You need to be the one teaching the statutes of the Lord. But look what he goes on to say, verse 21. Moreover, in other words, but in Moses, in addition, What I'm suggesting is you look for able men from all the people, men who fear God and who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. This dude's taught this out. Verse 22, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you. Now, that's not the ultimate objective, but that's part of the blessing of it. This is going to be easier for you, because frankly, you're going to have a heart attack. This is going to be easy for you, and they will bear the burden with you. That's part of the objective. Listen, Moses, you don't take the whole load. You were never designed to be this way, and I never designed you to be that way. This is about us bearing the load together, bro. Listen to me. Because what's so often missed here is that this looks as just a text about delegation in order in order how strategically to carry out the load. But listen, when one person carries the load of the ministry, it steals the ministry opportunities away from other people. When there's a king in the house that loves to be the king, It steals, it robs opportunities for other people to be doing the work of the ministry. Listen, I do not want to be conquering king. This is not Doug's church. Moses, this is not your people. God in his sovereignty has put you there. And listen, I'm telling you, this boy, not this boy, this boy is humble. We're going to see that in just a minute. The best appeals pause to assess. The best appeals begin with their questions. The best appeals speak the truth in love. The best appeals offer solutions. And I'm just going to add with the solutions. By the way, don't forget, your suggested for solutions should be wise and skilled and biblically driven. And oh, by the way, here's the hardest part, I think, frankly. Your solutions don't have to be taken. Couples. Husbands and wives, especially. I have a suggestion, Doug, for how you might be able to do this. I have a suggestion, Karen, for how you might be able to do this. We're not talking about a sin issue. We're talking about us giving a suggestion. And you know what? Actually, it may not be a good suggestion. Listen, suggestions are suggestions. They don't have to be taken. And in fact, they can be rejected. In fact, maybe I don't have all the information. In fact, maybe my suggestion isn't really all that good of a suggestion. No. In fact, maybe my suggestion doesn't have all the information at hand. In fact, maybe my suggestion is taking, if you will, my personality and my bent. I'm a people person. And if someone else is an engineer type person, the way I would do it is different than how they would do it. And different isn't wrong. It may just be different. And that's okay. We're not talking about key sin truth issues. We're talking about suggestions on the ways to go through things. 
they actually can be not heeded. Teen, we're not talking about going to your mom and saying, hey, guess what I learned at church on Sunday? You can give me a suggestion to take out the trash. I don't have to do it. No, that's not what we're saying, okay? When you go to work on Monday and you say, you know what? I don't have to do what you tell me, boss. No, that's not what we're talking about here, okay? I think you understand. Last, the best appeals, let God work. The best appeals given realize that God is going to work this through. I think in verse 19 and 23, we see Jethro include a statement about a, a big God in here that allows it to be understood that his appeal made in grace and love, it's not a sin issue. It may be that he's wrong. God may be teaching him something through it, actually. It may not be my way. I'm to be content, thankful in the Lord. God is sovereign, and he's going to work it out but I thank you for the chance to be able to make my appeal. Listen, we can learn a lot for how this appeal is being made here. Well, let's take a look at how Moses receives it. Oh, by the way, did you notice that God didn't tell Moses this? Listen, if you follow the text, God has been the one so far always telling Moses, for the most part, what to do. This is really the first time a person has come into the picture that has given him direction on what to do. Why is that? I think because what we are seeing as well as last week, we're seeing God forming his people. And that means if they're going to be priests of the world, which is the objective down the road, that means that God has to begin merging in so that they become his channels of truth. I think it's so cool. God is so strategic. And he is now allowing people like Jethro to now be voices of truth. Why? Because the Israelites have to be voices of truth. Oh, there's just so, so much cool strategy going on. Well, last, the push-out plan is implemented. Verse 24, so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Oh, way to go, Mo. I got to tell you, Moses was the guy to be able to get arrogant and proud and cocky. God had been using him to do this stuff like no one's ever seen before. And you're telling me what to do? Listen, Dad, you haven't even been around. You don't know squat, Dad. No, actually he does because he had gotten him caught up to date, as we saw earlier in the text, and now he's coming with some wisdom and understanding. And so here Moses in this is now listening. That's why Hebrews 12 says that he was an amazingly humble man because this incredible leader who didn't want to take the task on back at the burning bush is now in this position, and yet he's still staying humble. Dad, thanks! And he implements it. Look at this, verse 25. Moses chose able men out of all Israel, made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands of hundreds and of fifties and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Just what Jethro had said. In any hard case they brought to Moses, but any smaller matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Dad is in and out for one chapter. Why? Because God just did a really marvelous work here. Listen, folks, this is so important. What did Moses do? Well, let's take a look. Let's go to the slide here and what Moses ended up doing from Jethro's suggestion. As you see over here, we've got these 10 people. Remember, he started out and he said, put, put a, an able person over 10. Now, in here, I've got these, they're having at it. 
Okay, they're karate chopping each other's heads off. All right, so whether it's a fight or a theological thing they're trying to work through, whatever. What happens is, is that Moses puts someone over the 10. Is it 10 individuals? I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's maybe more like 10 families because 10 individuals back in those days may have been like one family. But uh, here they are. So over these 10, we'll just keep it at that. Let's go to the next one. Then he says there's to be one over 50s. So then you've got these spots here for these green guys to be involved. Again, this is not Gestapo world. This is ministry world. This is caring for people, helping them solve problems, helping them come to understand the statutes of the Lord and how they're to be applied. These are people engaged in ministry of helping people. And then you've got one over them. Again, don't think, don't think business paradigm here. Don't think that, you know, the management structure. That's not the way to view this. This is ministry effectiveness. And then you've got that over here. Then you've got a guy over them so they can help. Let's go to the next one. Then, whoa. Then this one, this is a guy over hundreds. So you've got a guy, you've got 10 purple leaders. Then you've got like, I don't remember, I've lost 50 of the others. Then you've got 100 leaders. Just keep it right here for a second. Let me tell you, before the paradigm was Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Hur, and two million people. Now look what's happening. What's really happening is Moses is training men who will train, help men who will be able to help ones, who will be able to help ones who are all about helping people. I just want to tell you, as we carry this into the New Testament, I think Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 says exactly this. Pastors, your job is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And I want for us to understand, listen, this has so much, oftentimes this is where it just gets into the business realm. And no, it's not just about business and delegation. I think this is God's for the first time on the face of the scriptures. We see God instituting the reality that ministry is intended to be pushed out to people. I don't want to do it all. I can't do it all. Oh my word, I've almost been having a heart attack anyway. No, I'm kidding. You know, no, just with all this, I'll tell you, it just it shouldn't be that way. That's not the way God designed it. This is the kind of thing where people are being discipled by people who are being discipled by people who are being discipled by people who are being discipled. Churches generally talk about how we want to disciple people. But I think the key element that's being lost is that, yes, we want to disciple people. We want to disciple people. And what does that mean? We want to help you grow in Christ wherever you are at. If you're like, I don't even know what this whole Bible thing is all about. I love that. We want to have someone come alongside you and help you understand how to, how to look at the Bible. How to, that's great. Don't freak by that. Be like, wow, this is cool. I get to learn. It's a wonderful, Right? Man, I'd love that. And then on top of that, churches want to help that. But then so often what happens is there's, there's no slot for people to actually be a disciple maker. Let me put it this way. For 15 years as a businessman and then in ministry, for 15 years, taught adult Sunday school classes. Oh, gosh, sorry. Taught adult Sunday school classes for 15 years in my life so far. And it wasn't until the last two years that I think I started understanding this. 
because I would teach groups of 20, 50, 60, 70 adults at a time in an adult Sunday school class. And you know what? It became teaching. And I hope it was good. I, I know it was helpful. It was a ministering to the masses reality. And that's a good thing. But listen to me. In 13 out of those 15 years, I had structured up so people could be greeters and people could be, you know, uh, announcement and they could do social things. And I, I put those things together, but then in it, those are serving things. And we're about serving around here. And that's a very important reality. But there was no place in the structure for someone to actually be about discipling someone else and learning how to do that until the last two. And I just want to tell you, we have so much teaching that's available today. Oh, my word, in this country. You can go nonstop, get teaching, 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 teaching. And good teaching, 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 teaching. And I'm not anti-teaching, but I'm doing this. We are getting such massive teaching-driven heads that we're forgetting about the reality of living life together and helping one another. And when I have a problem, why do I hide it? Go get some help. And so I just want to let you know, this is how we do it here at Harvest. What we do it here at Harvest, the way to try and make this real. I'm not saying like this is the only way, but I'm saying how we do it here. This is where small groups come in. Because we want people to be in a venue. Listen, here you cannot connect with lots of people. You just can't. And people oftentimes come into a worship service and you, you, know, you got to assess what's going on at a church. But then it's like, man, I'm not getting any friends. Well, I can, I, honestly, I just say this lovingly. Well, duh. You can't do that in this venue. I mean, come on. You can't. You need to be able to get into a place where you're able to rub shoulders, spend some time with people. And here at Harvest, the biggest way we do that is in our small groups where we seek to get 8, 10, 12, 14 people together, meeting together. This fall, it's only eight times that they're meeting together and rubbing shoulders, learning, you know, trying, asking questions. And we're going to have people of various ages. In fact, we're looking to have the singles group that we were doing kind of integrated throughout. And Jens Miller is going to be leading a group for just single women, whether it's divorced, unmarried, widow, doesn't matter, all ages. We're going to try and get this more and more going because I just want to tell you, go to the next one. Because my job and the pastor's job and the leader's job is to be able to key in on helping those people who help people that help people. That's what we're trying to do here. I'm a little intense about this because I really think this is important. I also want to finish with this. Um, Exodus chapter 18 does not say all churches should have small groups. From a, a preaching pastoral theological position, that's called proof texting. In other words, you go to a passage and say, see, they broke down in tens. That's why we have to have small groups. Now, what, what I'm doing is, is I'm taking a look at it. It's very, very interesting where you see this concept of discipleship going on through Scripture all the way through. Exodus 18 was God forming a nation together. And I think there are some things we need to learn about that as a church. And I just want to say this. If you're checking us out still yet, we're just less than a year and a half old. If you're still, you know, checking us out here recently, totally understand. Been there, done that. Want for you to continue checking us out. If you've been here for a while and you're like, hey, this is where I really want to make my home, then we have three things we want going on. Worship Christ, walk with Christ, work for Christ. Worship Christ, that means that we want everybody coming every Sunday to be able to come to church together. Why? Because we think this is a big deal. 
This isn't just about a duty thing. We want this to be a fun thing. We want this to be a scripture thing. I do view this as discipling time. This is an opportunity for me to disciple you. And we want for people to come in on Sundays. And then, this, and then I'll go to the third thing. The third thing is, is working for Christ. We want people serving. I'm so thankful we have 100 people serving here every Sunday. Every Sunday, 20% of the people that are here are serving every Sunday. We don't do the 80-20 rule. People are involved here. And yet, if you're not serving in a capacity, we need you. We want you. Not only that, it's not only about us, but it's about you getting involved in serving. God wants you to serve. And then the third thing is, is walking with Christ. We want people coming on Sundays. We want people serving. And we want people walking with Christ. And the main tool for that is our small groups. We want people in a small group. I'm going to tell you, it's so quinky-dink to me. This passage was not worked out to be able to come out on the Sunday that we're talking about, starting to talk about small groups in a big way. This just happens. And I go, well, you know God. And so I'm going to use it. And I'm going to use it. God wants us working together. My job is to push ministry out to you. My job is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Your job is to go, Doug, I want to be equipped. Doug, I want to work for God. More! That's what we want to have happening. God's so cool. This is about us giving glory to him. Not me, not you, us giving glory to him as a church that is effective for him and full throttle. Well, let me pray and let's uh, finish. Lord, I thank you so much for your love for us. I thank you so much just for your goodness in our lives. God, I thank you that uh, we have some people that just dearly love you. I thank you that this morning, I'm just assuming, God, we've got people here this morning that are all over the spectrum of where they are at in their study, understanding with you. I know we've got people who have never even gone to church in their life, and yet they've been coming here for some months. And they're just trying to figure you out. I love that, and it thrills your heart. Father, may we be a church that helps them grow in their understanding of you. Show yourself. May we also be a church that truly participates in your plan. May we be individuals and a people that participates. And God, I pray that we would be a people that is continually in that process of realizing, of understanding what it means to walk with you, what walking by faith with you is like, even from the standpoint of the appeal. Lord, I pray we'd be the kind of people that make appeals at home, make appeals with friends, make appeals at work, even with unbelievers, the kind of appeals that are the kind of way that Jethro did. May we do them wisely and with love. And Lord, may we be a place where disciples are raised, where people become engaged with you, people become excited in you, people grow in you. And God, I don't just pray for that. That's part of the discipleship process. Father, I pray that this would be a place where disciple makers would be raised. Because Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. The problem is the laborers are few. May we be the kind of church that just gets this need to be laborers for you and the joy of it. And may we experience the burden together because you did for us. In Christ's name we pray.